0: The Can He Do That podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Then check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and The Washington Post Brand Studio. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Like You hear about these shootings so often, it just starts to feel normal or commonplace, but that's what the problem is. It's not normal. This doesn't happen in any other nation in the world, and yet it's happening all the time. We
0: shouldn't have had to endure this as children. There should only have been one for there to be a change.
2: We're not going to give up this time. I, I don't know what to say. No parents have to go through this. No kids have to go through this. We have to end this craziness. There's this whole population of children who are ignored because they aren't the ones who get shot. And we tend to focus really narrowly, especially in these events, on that that number 17, for instance, from South Florida. You know, there are 3,000 kids in that school, and they're all going to be traumatized.
0: I'm Martine Powers, and this is Can He Do That? A podcast that asks big questions about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. And this week... Instead of doing a regular episode and asking a can he do that question, we're doing something different. We wanted to talk about something that I think eludes logic and confounds simple questions of how or why.
1: My fellow Americans, today I speak to a nation in grief.
0: I mean, honestly, we've all heard this speech so many times that we could write it ourselves. It's a speech about a school
1: Filled with innocent children and caring teachers. That Became was the
0: latest the site of an American mass shooting.
1: Became the scene of terrible violence, hatred, and evil.
0: This one was at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High in Florida. South Florida.
1: A great and safe community.
0: And a 19 year old armed with an AR 15
1: opened fire on defenseless students. And teachers, he murdered 17 people.
0: 17 people. And as much as this latest school shooting feels familiar, it also feels different. Different because it's one of the most deadly in recent years, but different because there has been this upswell of children speaking directly to the government and to the president in a way that feels pretty new. For now, it's hard to say what, if anything, is gonna come out of this. President Trump has indicated that he's willing to consider measures like a ban on bump stocks or age restrictions on purchasing semi-automatic rifles. And, and we'll see if that gets traction in Congress. But in the meantime, we wanna talk a little bit more about the current state of gun violence in this country. Mass shootings like the one that happened in Parkland, Florida, but other kinds of shootings too and about what happens when you hear directly, firsthand, from the children who experience this kind of trauma. Those children have been the focus of one reporter here at The Post, John Woodrow Cox. For the past year, he's been interviewing and profiling child victims of gun violence in the United States. And like everyone else, he struggles to understand what happened at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High.
2: I got pretty nauseated when I just saw the um, the footage on CNN. I looked up and saw the kids being, uh, you know, carted out and, um, you know, for me, it just took me back to, to you know, one story after another uh, that I'd immersed myself in over the past year. And, you know, and, and there is a little bit of a feeling of helplessness because, you know, this has been going on since pre-Columbine.
0: John doesn't just write about mass shootings. He also writes about kids who are hurt by gang violence or crossfire in their neighborhoods. And he writes about kids who are witnesses to school shootings. Not, not the big ones, but the small ones where just a couple people die and it doesn't make national headlines.
2: You know, this is a topic that gets covered a great deal. Um, children being affected by gun violence, but almost never do you get to uh, hear that from the children's perspective. So even when a child gets shot, And you're gonna write a story about that. Typically, you see that from the parent or the law enforcement or the teacher, but seldom do you see it through that kid's eyes. And so we wanted to show their experience and through their voices. One great thing about doing stories on kids is that they don't have filters, is that they don't know how it's supposed to sound. And so they were just incredibly honest about how they view that experience, their, their pain and their anger.
0: Do you think that Americans, uh, on average, have an accurate sense of how much gun violence happens to children in this country?
2: They have no idea. I think Americans have no idea uh, how much gun violence occurs and how much it affects kids. I mean, what they're aware of are the school shootings, because these are the things that get uh, all the attention. But there are two dozen children shot in this country every single day. A kid every hour is getting shot. And that only accounts for the kids who are physically injured. Um, there are literally millions of children in high-crime neighborhoods whose entire lives are framed by the threat of gun violence. So the, schools, uh, the school they go to and the parks they can visit and the streets they can walk down are all um, determined by that threat. And that creates uh, what we call toxic stress. You know, that creates an environment where a kid, it makes it harder for them to learn, it makes it harder for them to develop emotionally. And so, no, I don't think Americans have any idea Uh, how much kids are being affected by gun violence.
0: One of the shootings that John wrote about took place in Townville, South Carolina, in September 2016. The shooter was a teenager who killed his dad at home before he drove to the school where he shot and killed a first grader and injured two other students.
1: We have a shooting at Townville Elementary. A little boy has been shot, and we have a man outside of our building who is the shooter and his truck is still in our back playground and
0: he at his truck is at the back playground
1: yes and he is walking around the, the, the shooter is walking around and our little boy is downstairs we've got the school in lockdown and we are doing the defibrillator and he, he's bleeding horribly
2: in Townville, uh, the kid who, one of the ch- children who was shot, actually, was doing better than pretty much any of the other kids. And it's hard to say why. He was doing fine. He wasn't having nightmares. He was sleeping fine. You know, there were other kids who were totally overwhelmed by their trauma and their nightmares, and uh, to the point that one girl had to be pulled out of school and and homeschooled. Uh, so I think that's one big thing. And, you know, we, we've looked at, this is an ongoing analysis, but... We can say conservatively there have been at least 150,000 students, this is K through 12, uh, who've experienced a school shooting uh, in America. And that number, you know, we're still working on it, but, you know, that's a conservative figure. That's a huge number of kids who are in some way traumatized. And and it often doesn't feel like it's ever going to end.
0: I wanted to talk a little bit more specifically about school shootings and mass shootings. The one thing that I've noticed, at least in the few that I've covered, is that, that there's two different approaches that or responses that families will have. Like many of them turn inward and don't want to make it into a political issue. And then many of them turn outward and I think find some kind of power in, in making it a political issue and advocating for themselves and their families
2: and the issues that they think are important. So I think most of the families who i talk to uh have not gone the way of advocacy and i think that's partly because i i tended to catch people while they were very much in the middle of their trauma uh and they were just so close to it there was a group of high school girls in las vegas who survived the shooting there i think that uh some of them will um as they you know one of the girls wrote about her experience and i think they'll be a little bit more uh, outspoken, probably because they're ages, I think. You know, they're, they're at an age um, where they feel, I think, more of a responsibility uh, to share their experience and to, to kind of have that sense of ownership. But, you know, a lot of people, I think the vast majority of people, certainly in this country who experience gun violence, even in school shooting settings, uh, they're just trying to, to get through it. And, um, and so I think that's one thing that's really remarkable about what's going on in South Florida A lot of the discussion right now is very different than I've ever seen post-shooting, and I think it's specifically because these kids have decided to make their voices heard, and and they're not mincing words. I mean, they're really advocating for, for gun laws and gun legislation, and I think that's cracking through a little bit in a way that it hasn't before. I want to read one of the president's tweets from over the weekend. He wrote, very sad that the FBI missed all the many signals sent out by the Florida school shooter. This is not acceptable. They're spending too much time trying to prove Russian collusion with the Trump campaign. There is no collusion. Get back to the basics and make us all proud. I know you definitely feel some anger, uh, understandably, at the FBI. I What do you think of this tweet and others from the president this week? You know, the first half of that tweet is semi-fine. The FBI did make a mistake in not investigating Nicholas Cruz further.
1: However, it's insane that he went into detail about Russia. This is not about him. This is about us. This is about the residents of Parkland. Children are dying and the FBI didn't do anything about it. The president should have said there needs to be changes within the FBI. Instead, he started talking about Russia and collusion and his campaign.
0: Alex Wind is a 17-year-old junior at Stoneman Douglas High. In the days after the shooting, he's been one of the most insistent voices among these students, tweeting nonstop, going on CNN to interview with Anderson Cooper, and also talking to Wesley Lowry, a national reporter for The Post.
1: So Alex was one of the first three students uh, who launched Never Again MSD, um, which is the kind of umbrella organization that the students are using to... Um, organize and and kind of get their message out um, about the policy changes they want to see and and so we we started having this conversation and and I was kind of walking through both what had happened to him where he was uh, when the shooting happened but then also kind of the growth and the change of the few days since that shooting right
0: what was Alex's story about what that day was like for him like what happened to him on the day of the shooting when he was in the school
1: So Alex was in drama class. He was with a group of about 60 other students. And what happened when the school shooting began was that the school shooter pulled the fire alarm. And so because of that, all the students are like, wait, what's going on? Alex was one of the first people out of his classroom. And as he was walking out of the classroom, he saw security guards off in the distance walk into another building, run back out and wave at all the students like, go back, go back, go back, code red. Code red meant an active shooter. And so Alex helped corral the rest of the students back into the classroom where they locked the door, they all crouched in the closets in the back and and kind of went through this setup that they had been taught, right? If there's an active shooter, you're supposed to, like, you're supposed to crouch, you're supposed to, be like, silence your phone, not make a bunch of noise, lock the doors, pretend that you're not there, basically. And so he was there in a closet with 60 other students for about 90 minutes waiting to see what was happening.
0: So a lot of these kids are putting out their message into the world of, of, of what they want, what they want the government to do. What do they want? What are their objectives with this?
1: So I just interviewed a student earlier today, and what he said to me was he said, what we want is a world where a 19-year-old boy can't buy a war machine and kill a bunch of our classmates in school, right? They've been very deliberate and very careful that there hasn't been a list of specific policies and specific things, although there has, have been a lot of conversation about would that look like an assault weapons ban? Would that look like raising the age of eligibility for that? What about things like bump stocks or high-capacity ammunition magazines, right? And so what, what they've essentially been saying over and over again is we can't return to school until we feel safe in school. Alex said this to me in that interview. He goes, I'm not going back to school until gun legislation's passed. And I said, well, you really mean that? Like, you guys are all just not going to show up at school? And he goes, well, what, what else do you expect from me? So you want me – nothing is going to change and you want me to go back to the same hallways where my friends got killed and, you're, and you want me to believe that I'm safe there, right? But it's something different when a 17-year-old looks you in the eye and goes, how am I supposed to go back to school unless you make school safe? And school is clearly not safe. What do you want me to do?
0: So um, Trump signed a memo to Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, um, about this issue of bump stocks and proposing regulations to to ban bump stocks and these other things and turn semi-automatic firearms into machine gun like firearms. Do you think that that is enough to placate these kids who are raging against their government?
1: I wouldn't ever want to speak for them, but it seems unlikely that it will be. Uh, in part because bump stocks, to our knowledge, were not a factor in this shooting. Now they were a factor in the Las Vegas shooting last October, but um, th- there were no bump stocks used in the shooting. Not to our knowledge, no. I mean, we don't know that yet. Perhaps there were, but we believe that he was probably that the shooter in Florida was probably just using high capacity magazines. Right, a bump stock is different in that it changed. It's not just just about the capacity of how many bullets he can fire, but it's about the speed. And we, we don't have any indication yet, at least, that bump stocks were a factor in the shooting. Um, and so we know. And so that's one of the reasons that this might be a thing that someone like President Trump would sign, because they are everyone already agreed that they wanted regulations of bump stocks. They just didn't do it the last time. And so this is an easy thing to kind of pull back from the ether and say, well, but we did that thing. When the students we, I, that I've talked to, it seems like they s- certainly want some type of restriction. Um, if not an outright ban on some of the types of weaponry. Um, a lot of the conversation is focused around the AR-15, which has been used time and time again in these types of mass shootings, right? And, and so I think that, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see, you know, these students have said they're not going back to school. They've planned this march on Washington for March 24th, and they've got um, then in April on the anniversary of Columbine, the massive walkouts across the country it's going to be interesting, one, not only what these Florida students demand when they ultimately demand them, but also how this grows legs, right? And if it becomes something that's not just about a Florida high school, but rather that something that students mobilize on across the country, who knows where this is going go.
0: One thing that I find interesting is, you know, you have covered a lot of Black Lives Matter activism, which I think also had these situations where you'd have, you know, young people out in the streets in the, in the days or weeks after something terrible and something very traumatic had happened and kind of creating this political message in the moment, in the immediate aftermath. Do you, I, I guess, do you, do you see similarities here between those two things, but between those two tactics? And how do you think that's received by the public who sees these teenagers advocating in this way?
1: So I do think there are certainly some similarities here, right? I think it's always fascinating to watch groups of people who've been traumatized, who have gone through trauma and see how they respond to that trauma. Um, I hear in the earnestness of many of these students from Florida, the same earnestness and resolve that I heard um, from many of the young activists who I met, um, whether they be in Ferguson or Baltimore or Charleston or Cleveland, this idea that this thing happened yesterday and I cannot sleep until we fix this, at least for a subsection of people talking about this is a form of therapy. It's a form of processing it. And activism, in fact, in many ways, can be a form of resolving in your own mind an otherwise unthinkable thing. I do think there has been some marked differences in how the organic demonstration and protest has been perceived um, and was perceived, the differences between many of the Young Black Lives Matter activists and some of the Parkland activists. While there was a lot of media coverage of Black Lives Matter, much of it sympathetic and, and... Interesting. I do think that a lot of cable news especially was remarkably skeptical, a lot of these young black activists didn't really know what their deal was or who they were, how are you really gonna change this. I think that it's been fascinating to watch how seriously the Parkland activists have been taken. But
0: but I also feel like there's some pushback here too, right? Like I I feel like I've seen on Facebook, on Twitter, whatever, um, regular people and politicians who are saying, like, look, maybe parents should not be allowing these kids or, you know, teenagers to be out in the public eye in this very kind of vulnerable situation for them. They've just experienced this trauma. Like, maybe these are not the right people to be getting involved in this political fight right now. Do you see some of that pushback? Do you think that pushback is valid? I think there are
1: reasonable concerns about how these young people process the trauma they've been through. But beyond that, Right, the historically the best advocates for chains have been the people most impacted by the thing they're trying to change. Right? That the the folks who the LGBT folks whose friends were murdered become the activists who, who gain equal rights for LGBT folks, right? That the the mothers and brothers and sons of the black people who are lynched and killed and run out of town become the activists who who get the Voting Rights Act passed and the Civil Rights Act passed, right? That time and time again, the best advocacy is done by the people closest to the trauma and, and closest and who have been victimized by the inequity and inequality previously. So so one thing that we've
0: learned about Donald Trump in the years since he's been president and also during the campaign is that he doesn't respond with kid gloves to people who are criticizing him, even if they are very sympathetic figures, right? Even if they are, they're people that have you know, this sort of upswell of national sympathy. How do you think that he's gonna navigate this, having these kids out in public talking about how they think that their government is doing them wrong?
1: Thus far, the criticism from these young activists has not been very Trump-centric. While they certainly responded to things he has said, this has not been about the failure of Donald Trump or the failure of the presidency. It's been about a failure at every level of a government. I think that as long as that is the case, there's a likelihood of some common ground being found there. You know, frankly, I see this as a space where, you know, Donald Trump actually might see this as an opportunity to some extent. Uh, But I do think it'll be interesting if this actually becomes a dynamic where it is the young activists, in an adversarial role with the presidency. They have yet to become fully formed public figures who people feel free to attack, but that is certainly going to come um, and, is pro- and is already beginning. And as that happens, well, it'll be interesting to see which levels of that messaging um, become ingrained in his thinking about this and, and how that affects his willingness to work with some of these young people.
0: So that brings us to the question of can they do that? Can these teenagers take the momentum of this moment and use it to force the government and the president to do something on gun control, this issue that has been so controversial and intractable for all these years?
1: You never say never. And I think it's important. right? I think sometimes in political prognostication, we feel we have a bias that like this is how this thing has always happened. So therefore it will continue to happen this way. Right. If you had predicted with the Civil Rights Act, while all the other ones have failed, so clearly this one will fail too, like you would have been really wrong. And so I think that there is something to be said for letting the moment play out a little bit. Uh, the NRA is certainly seen as highly influential. It gives out a lot of money. But, but that said, there hasn't been a big, major vote on guns in, in several years. And, and when that happened, after Sandy Hook, the Manchin-Toomey bill, that bill gained some Republican support it lost some Democratic support and still came pretty close to passage, right? And so in this moment, a moment where we have since had some of the deadliest shootings that have ever happened post-Sandy Hook. Sandy Hook certainly was a moment that shook, I think, everyone in the nation. But we've seen the Pulse nightclub, we've seen San Bernardino, we've seen uh, Las Vegas, and now we've seen Parkland, Florida. These are all among the worst shootings we've ever seen. And I have to imagine that there are a lot of folks out there of all political stripes who are saying, we have to be able to do something here. Let's do it. And so you can never underestimate the power of a moment like that, especially when that moment is met with with a messenger, the way we've seen these students. A lot of it comes down to what will the conversation be? Is this a conversation about banning bump stocks and high-capacity magazines? Is this a conversation that's about an assault weapons ban? Which, we have to remember, we've had in this nation previously, right? It's not talking about inventing a thing that's never happened before. Um, It's going back to a policy that previously existed. And so because of that, even in a world in which the NRA was fiercely opposing whatever the proposal might be, with the president we have in the White House now, with the political dynamics of this moment, Something could happen.
0: Thanks for listening to Can He Do That from The Washington Post. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Or find us on WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts or anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. Can He Do That is produced by Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Lauren Voglio, with original music by Ted Muldoon. Special thanks to John Woodrow Cox and Wesley Lowry for help with this episode.
1: Hi, I'm Mike Rosenwald, a reporter here at The Washington Post. I'm hosting a new daily podcast called Retropod. It's a show about the past, rediscovered. Every weekday morning, we'll explore some of history's most dramatic moments. I'll introduce you to colorful characters from our past. Forgotten heroes, overlooked villains, dreamers, explorers, world changers. Check it out on your Amazon Echo, Google Home, or your favorite podcast player. For instructions on how to listen, visit WashingtonPost.com slash Retropod. The
2: Washington. Washington. Washington Post. Post. Hi, I'm Jimmy Kimmel, and I'm here with Jeff Edgers. I'm gonna do his podcast, Edge of Fame. It's a collaboration between WBUR and the Washington Post. I've always wanted to be involved in a collaboration between WBUR and the Washington Post ever since I was a baby. Edge of Fame, before, behind, and beyond the spotlight. Subscribe to Edge of Fame wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by ZipRecruiter, offering technology to help you find candidates that match your job qualifications.